Good morning, everybody. It's really great to be with you. It's super to have spent time with some of the leaders in your church. I think you're a truly blessed community. Uh, I can say this to you, trust their hearts, um, but use your gifts to sharpen their ideas. Um, and, and I mean that, trust their hearts. There's something deeply safe in your leaders. There's someone deeply safe in your leaders, but they need you to bring process and to bring people and to bring capacity and action to that which they carry. And so, uh, and, and, and that's a remarkable thing, that you can trust the heart of someone. Jesus was beginning to trust Simon Peter. Simon Peter thought that Jesus had a problem. He thought Jesus was hopelessly too optimistic about human nature. Um, he thought Jesus saw way too much potential in him. Why? Because he was spending time with Jesus, and as he was spending time with Jesus, he was seeing this remarkable man, and at times he was stunned and awed by who Jesus was. Jesus had called his disciples, we read, that they might be with him, that they might preach his gospel and do his works, and as Peter undergoes this experience of, 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 of realizing that even in his skill set of fishing, this carpenter actually knows better. And he begins to discover something of who Jesus is. And he thinks of who he is. He says, Jesus, I'm, I'm a sinful man. You see potential that I know I don't have. Jesus, I'm part of the problem. You think I'm part of the solution. And again and again, we find people encountering Jesus. And that seems to be their narrative. Occasionally, people are arrogant enough to think that they may be the solution when they're part of the problem. But if they take time to be with Jesus, they quickly are humbled to that sense and eventually become deeply convinced, Jesus, I think you better leave me alone. I remember thinking that I was in my mid-teens. And... Uh, and I'd become a very angry young man. My parents had been in ministry, and it was a failed ministry, so severe that not only did my home break up, but my father ended up at a vagrant on the streets in one of the cities of Johannesburg. And I did not, uh, of South Africa, and I did not have much of a view of positive things. In fact, I was deeply angry. And yet, a few years ago, I was in Liverpool at a conference and there was a lady who was sharing uh, just over the table uh, as I'd come in and started to get to know some of the people in the, in the conference and, and were chatting to some of the people at administration. She told me that because of a condition in her blood, she had glaucoma and her eyes were starting to go rigid and the, I don't know what technical term is, but in a sense, the, the connections between the front and the back of the eye were starting to snap off. And having been mapped over five years, she was losing her sight because these connecting points within the eye uh, were, were releasing. And then they were being absorbed into the body. And so those nerves inside the eye were gone. And she was going blind. And she had received much prayer and care and love over five years. And we were just talking about the nature of faith and the risk of trusting God and and she didn't want to be prayed for again because she'd felt she'd tried so hard. And, and she was disappointed. 
and she was discouraged. So I went home to, uh, to where we were staying and I came back and I asked her, please can I pray for you? You see, I deeply believed that because of Jesus, I could make a difference in her life. And maybe, because we can't promise, we can't make promises we can't keep, but that maybe, just, just maybe, God's grace would show in the moment. And so I prayed, and about two days later, she was quite convinced that, that something had happened to her eyes, and she went to have her eyes tested, and not only had the damage uh, been arrested because they'd been tracking it very clearly over five or six years, but that incredibly, a creative miracle had happened in her eyes, and her eyes were fully restored, and there were no nerve endings missing. How did I go from being part of the problem to being part of the solution? What does Jesus do for us that changes us so deeply? I want us to look very briefly, oh dear, um, let's just see if I can get this, there we go. I want to talk about something that Jesus did, and he tells it in the form of a parable when he says that he's going to be sowing into the world a people who, um, who carry something of the newness of the kingdom of Jesus. And so he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed into his field. But while everyone was sleeping, an enemy came, and he sowed weeds among the wheat, and then he went away, and the wheat sprouted, formed ears, and then the weeds also appeared. I think that column is in my way, so I'll come to this side. Why don't you just move me along the... There we go. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in the field? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? Next one. He answered, Because while you... No, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, then tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. A little bit later, Jesus tells them the meaning of the parable, if we can go to the next slide. And the crowd came, and he went into the house, and the disciples came to him, and he said, explain to us the, the meaning, the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, the one who sowed the good seed, I want you to see this, is the son of man. The Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age. I think we could just stop there. I'm going to mix the metaphor slightly. Jesus looks out, and, and he, he sees, for example, in Matthew chapter 9, a world full of people in pain. Scripture says that he saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd as he was going around teaching. And he calls his disciples to pray with him that the Lord will send out workers into his harvest field. The incredible thing is that he didn't have a mega church back in Nazareth or Capernaum that could send out the workers. He wanted a great harvest field force, but where was this force? They were the problem people. They were the people who were harassed and helpless. Jesus believed he could change this. And in the metaphor of this parable, Jesus believed that he could take seed sown into the world that was destructive and he could turn it into good seed. You see, the meaning of this parable 
is that the kingdom of God comes through people that Jesus alone is able to sow. The kingdom of God comes to the world through people that Jesus alone, and he uses, and he doesn't use this often, a title in his parable called the Son of Man. So we're going to jump ahead a little bit and, and, and just take a moment and look at this picture of the Son of Man. I think we can turn the PowerPoint off because uh, I'm, I'm moving too quickly. Um, at the end of the day, what is the Son of Man? The Son of Man is a reference to Daniel chapter 7. It's a remarkable figure that we find in Scripture. Daniel prays, and he says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. He was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. But the interesting thing is not only is the Son of Man someone who will reign, but that God's holy people, because of the Son of Man, will begin to reign through Him. So we read a little later in that same vision, the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven, that sounds pretty significant, will be handed over to the people of the Most High. You see, the rule and reign of God, because of one like the Son of Man, is not just left for God to do. It is handed over to people who will reign for the Most High. And so when this concept of Son of Man is introduced, we have something really powerful. We have the picture of a representative. In the parable that we just read, Jesus says the Son of Man is a character who represents God. We know God sows good things. And so the Son of Man in the parable is a character who represents God. In the prophecy, the Son of Man is a godlike character who represents humanity. And through him, humanity begins to reign. So we have this crossover. We have the idea of a representative, the Son of Adam. But not only a representative, a legal substitute. And, and we end up with a courtroom scene uh, where the books are opened. And we have an enemy where the power of the enemy is liable for judgment. Now we need to understand that as long as God delays judgment, as long as God delays judgment, then goodness can't come. And so judgment must be executed before the kingdom can happen. And so Jesus explains this parable that, that there's going to be a judgment. There's going to be a day. There's a day for Peter when he knows I am a sinful man and he's afraid of that moment. But judgment is delayed. Why? Because if judgment comes, Jesus' picture is you pull out the wheat. You're going to harm that. Peter came to understand and he wrote later in one of his letters that God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish. He's literally giving time for people's hearts to change. Romans 3 tells us that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left 
sins committed beforehand unpunished. Justice has been delayed by God because he does not want to harm humankind. God did not intend, he does not sow evil, he does not have a bag of mixed seed in the parable. He's only sowing good. Our choices have caused harm. And God is going to do something that is going to take people who cause harm and who are living in pain, and he is going to change them. But what we need to understand is that it will take a judgment. Because as long as judgment is delayed, there cannot be righteousness and freedom. And we go, how does this work? Now, I don't know if there's someone this morning who's feeling very brave and he's willing to volunteer as an illustration for me for a few minutes. I need to warn you, you're going to die. You're going to lie on the floor in front of me. Um, and so... Uh, Someone who's willing to be a graphic representation of, because what are we looking for? We're looking for how Jesus is going to take weed seed, and he's going to actually change its DNA so that it becomes wheat seed. He's going to take something that's bringing harm, and he's going to change it and make it into something that's doing good. Jesus sees immense potential in us. We think that's a problem. I want to show you. Is, do, do I have a victim? I mean a volunteer. There we go. It's Jenny. Jenny. Now, the Bible tells us that, on Jenny, you're very brave, and I'm, I'm, I'm admiring your courage. What we're going to do this morning, because we've got a nice line down the middle here, is we're going to imagine that this one group, and I do apologize, but it just so happens to be that you're on this side. The Bible says that you have a representative. Whether you like it or not, you are either represented by the first Adam or the second. You are either in Adam or you're going to be in Christ. Death comes through one man and life comes through another. Sins are because of one man. And righteousness is going to be the gift of the other. You can read this in Romans chapter 5 and in Romans chapter 6. So one group that we see in the world around us are weed, not because they've deliberately chosen to be as evil as possible, but simply they are following what they think is best for themselves. And as you live for what you think is best for yourself, the Bible says following your desires and thoughts, you're living along you're actually sowing destruction in God's world. And so you're in Adam, and you're under judgment, the Bible says. You're under condemnation. And, and the only reason it's not been enacted is because of God's patience. He's been kind to you. Now, if we had to think of the law, it also says that if you're in Adam, you're under the law. So this group is under the law. This group is under grace. Don't you think it's nice to be on this side? Okay. The other thing is that the law is a little bit like a nagging husband. Okay. The Bible has this picture in the book of Galatians of a husband who, who really is unfair and unkind to his wife. And the only way that wife can come free from the legal obligations of a perfectionist husband who constantly finds fault with you is not to kill her husband, because the Bible says the law is good, but is for the woman to die. 
says that if a woman dies, does the law have any power over her any longer? And, and the answer is no. And so what we find in Adam is that we've got a long list of things that God has validly got against us. So now we're going to understand that Jesus comes as your representative and he takes the charge sheet that stands against you and he says, put that to my account. And so God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. And, and he died. Now, when he died, something happens for those who put their faith in him. We get, we die. Paul says, Romans chapter 6, we die. And we get buried with him through baptism. So Jenny, if you can come over here. And you are now with Jesus. The wages of sin is death. And so because Jesus has taken your place... Jesus came and he stood in your place and he has died for your sin. When you put your faith in him, the Bible tells me something amazing happens. You too die with him. Not because you're punished, but because you are located in him. You are in Christ Jesus. And the moment you put your faith in him, you're no longer in Adam. And so Jesus takes the punishment. And so, Jenny, if you'd be so kind, that was a gracious death. Jenny is now dead. I want to ask you, when the enemy comes with his charge sheet, what accusation does he have against Jenny who has died with Jesus? None. You can't charge someone who's dead. They are only liable as long as they are alive. Their sins committed beforehand had been unpunished, and Jesus comes and he takes her punishment. She identifies with him. And so they are buried together. Now they're in a new place. They're in a tomb together. A little bit like a butterfly that has not yet emerged because it has been in one sense, one space. But the, the, the analogy is not quite correct because what's happening inside of Jenny buried with Jesus, is that a heart of stone is being removed and she's being given a heart of flesh. And God is taking the spirit of grace and love that was on Jesus that took him to the cross in the first place. And he's beginning to put that heart into Jesus. And so death came to Adam. And Jenny is buried with Jesus but the Bible does not just say, past tense, you died. You were buried. Past tense, Romans chapter 6 says, Jenny, you can live again. You have been raised with Christ. Past tense. Now I want you, I want, Jesus was baptized to identify with us. Now we are baptized to identify with Jesus. Tell me what happened at Jesus' baptism. The Holy Spirit came. Heaven opened. The divider between heaven and earth. The ceiling is gone. So the Holy Spirit came. What else happened? What is true of Jenny if she has been raised with Christ? 
She, he identified with her through his baptism. She's identified with him through her baptism. What's true of Jenny? You are my child. I love you. I am so pleased with you. And he begins to speak his words of life and love over us. Jenny, you've been an amazing example. Thank you. Let's give her... Okay. We can only understand the power of Jesus once we understand that the law is over. What does that mean? Shame is gone. Because guilt is gone. There is no objective guilt, so there needs to be no subjective shame. Fear is gone. Perfect love drives out fear. Discouragement goes. Doubt. And I'm not saying that these at times don't affect us, and I'm not saying that, that we, we do not have to enter a journey of understanding. But what I am saying is when we understand what Jesus has done for us, we begin to walk into situation after situation with an expectation. And here's the message of the parable. And here's what Peter needed to understand next to the seashore, that Jesus is going to take me, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And he is going to, Kill that sin. He's going to take that sin. He's going to pay for it. And then I am going to live in him. And he's going to give me a righteousness that no one can take away. And that will reform my affections and my desire. And here's what begins to happen. We go into life with the expectation of the message of this parable that we are the good seed sown into the world. We often forget the meaning of this parable, and we read Matthew, the, the, the previous verses, which is that the seed is the word of God, you know, the parable of the sower. Jesus tells a different parable. Of course, that parable is teaching us, this parable of the sower, that the outcomes of the kingdom are dependent upon the responsiveness of my heart. That's a fair interpretation. This parable is teaching you that in terms of our impact on the world, the outcomes of the kingdom are determined by the people Jesus makes. The people Jesus alone is able to make. The Son of Man will sow good seed into the world, and that is his people. And so every single person who's put their faith in Jesus Christ has had the guilt of their sins canceled and has the affirmation of God's love spoken over their life becomes a seed sown to change the world.